growing up, I can remember sitting at home and watching on the TV episodes of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. The show, hosted by Robin Leach, toured the world showing off the kind of homes and cars, boats, and vacation destinations only the rich and famous could afford to enjoy. Homes with vaulted ceilings and multiple chandeliers overlooking marble floors with the occasional bearskin rug or two, always with ample space for entertaining all of your guests. 2,000 square foot master suites accompanied by a dozen guest rooms, each with their own fireplace and private bathroom. Patios with beautiful views of sunsets over mountains and the sea. Enormous garages filled with classic or high performance cars to be driven around town leisurely or in the countryside or fast on the racetrack. Yachts perfect for hosting parties in the bay or for living in as you tour the Mediterranean Sea. Things that seem so much more luxurious and leisurely when described in Leach's native English accent. The voice that signed off each week wishing the viewers champagne wishes and caviar dreams. It was a time when wealth, status, and success, ooh, I might be a little bit loud there, sorry about that, uh, seemed to be measured in terms of the leisure that you had both the money and more importantly, the time to enjoy. But a few years ago, Harvard researchers published their finding that the way many have now come to measure success and status is not so much the things that someone has in abundance, like time or cars or even friends, but having very little of one particular thing, time to rest. After looking at a variety of sources from celebrity social media to psychology experiments to the types of things that advertisers appeal to, the authors of the study argued that a busy and overworked lifestyle, rather than a leisurely one, has become an aspirational status symbol. Recent studies show that we now work more hours than ever before. For some of us, this is not by choice. But for others, it, it might be. You see, overwork now isn't merely seen as a means to better your life or, or better your, yourself, but it's seen as evidence of being better yourself, being more in demand, not a means of obtaining scarce resources, but a sign that you are the scarce, in-demand resource, your time, your competence, your expertise. And yet as people look to their labors to provide not just income, but status and significance, while they expect their work to really do more for them than ever before, most people, if you ask them, would tell you they're not happy in their work. That restless discontent factored into uh, the recent great resignation or the big quit where millions of Americans left jobs that they just felt weren't worth it anymore, with many younger workers saying they were seeking a better work-life balance. And yet wanting more time for rest doesn't necessarily lead to being more rested, even for those who find the time for it. And it's not just limited to those in the workforce. In an article titled, Why is Rest Such Hard Work? A married mother of four writes, I've been thinking a lot lately about what it means to rest, wondering why I find good rest so elusive. I admit that my physical exhaustion is directly related to the circumstances of my daily life. 
four small children, a recent move to another state, and a husband who works long hours all take their toll, but I suspect that my lack of rest is deeper than my daily toil and that I am not alone in not knowing how to cease from striving. In fact, when I think about the people, about all the people I know and love, I can't think of anyone who would say they know how to rest well, or especially who are well-rested. We live in a culture that is addicted to work and success, and we often inadvertently translate our busyness into proof of our own status or importance. In other words, our lack of rest can actually become a source of, of pride. One of the commercials used in that uh, Harvard study asked this question, why do we work so hard? Other countries, they work, they stroll home, they stop by the cafe, they take August off off. Why aren't we like that? Because we are crazy-driven, hard-working believers. That's why. But what if the words from that commercial were actually true in a way that the company had never intended? What if there is a connection between our overwork, our inability to rest, and not just what we believe, but our unbeliefs? You see, deep down, we all want to find rest, but we find it elusive. And yet, even in resting, we can find ourselves restless because we don't believe we should be resting. In the midst of all these things, how do you find the kind of rest that satisfies? Well, for those of you who uh, have not been here the last few weeks, let me catch you up to speed. We've been looking at the New Testament letter uh, of Hebrews, um, a sermon written to Jewish followers of Jesus who, in the face of opposition from every side, are being tempted to turn back to Judaism and away from following Jesus. In response, chapter 3 reminds them of the time that God's people had been following Moses towards a place of rest called Canaan. He had already led them out of the restlessness of slavery in Egypt. But then, as things got hard along the way, when they wanted to turn back, they ended up missing out on the very rest that was prepared for them. And so as the next chapter begins, we see what we can learn from them in our own search for rest today. It's here in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And in your pew Bibles, it starts on page 1865, or it's on the screen. This is God's word. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they who, those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now, we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declare on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. What do we see in here? I mean, there's a whole lot about rest. I mean, I counted 11 times in 11 verses. We find some form of that word, and yet to see how it applies to us, we need to look at three things. The nature of the rest that's in view, how we miss it, and where to find it. So, the nature of the rest in view. I mean, right at the beginning of the chapter, we see the rest the preacher is talking about is God's rest. Saying in verse 1, the promise of entering his rest is what still stands. And then quoting God's own words in verses 3 and 5, where God talks about people entering, quote, my rest. Now, God's rest isn't something we think about very often, but it's right there at the beginning of the Bible. Verse 4 is quoting Genesis 2, where it reads, On the seventh day, God rested from all of his works. They would have been familiar words, words spoken each week in the liturgy of Sabbath evening services in Jewish synagogues. And what the work was in view? The work of creation. As verse 3 tells us, it's his work has been finished since the creation of the world. And yet, even if we know that's the work that's in view, it can be kind of hard to wrap your head around this idea that the God who rules over all creation somehow rests. So maybe this can help. Think of something that you might create. Uh, one of you told me a few months ago that you're building a boat in your basement, so we'll go with that. So you gather and you measure all of, of the wood that you need. Then you cut all the pieces to make sure they're the perfect length and the perfect shape. And then you put all the pieces together exactly in the right place. You glue it, you, you nail it, you sand it so it's nice and smooth, and then you seal it so that no water can get inside. Then you step back, you see your finished product, and the sense of joy and satisfaction fills you because your work is done, and now you can rest from it. But does that mean you never do anything with the boat? No way. <laughs> you see, the way that you rest from creating it looks like using it, you know, navigating it down the river, sailing in the open sea, okay, or whatever lake we can find around here. Now, if you make a hammock, it's obvious resting looks exactly like using it because that's what it was made for. And in the same way, God's rest doesn't mean that he's now doing nothing, but rather that he rests from the work of creating because that work is done. In Genesis 1, after God finished all of his creating, he pronounces it all very good. And so he rested from his work because he was satisfied in it, delighting in it because it was finished and done well. You see, for God, sustaining and ruling over the world is like us using the boat or using the hammock that we have made. As another pastor put it, uh, God's rest is his rule. God's rest isn't the ceasing from doing anything. It's a satisfaction with what's already been done, a satisfaction that lets you rest from your work to even delight in it, which means two things for those who are invited to enter into this rest. It's a rest based on work that's already finished, and it's a rest that's never separate from God's rule over all things. A rest of which the Sabbath, this practice of taking one day in seven as a day of rest, is an image. As we read in verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, characterized by a person resting from his work just as God did from his. 
as New Testament scholar William Lane puts it, the Sabbath rest of God is the archetype of all rest because it speaks of the completion of work and of deep satisfaction with work. God's deliverance from the restlessness of slavery in Egypt was a type of the rest God himself experiences. And yet the rest promised in the land of Canaan, this rest from the hardships of pilgrimage, from hostility and from the insecurity and the instability of life in the desert, was a type of the rest ultimately to be enjoyed by God's people in eternity. You see, there's not just a past, but a future rest in mind. You see, three times in this passage, the preacher is quoting Psalm 95, a psalm written after they were already in the promised land of Canaan. As Lane writes, the conquest and settlement of Canaan did not exhaust the intention of the promise. God yet has a future rest for his people. You see, the preacher of Hebrews is telling us as great as the rest God granted Israel when he freed them from slavery, as great as the rest the next generation experienced when Joshua led them into Canaan, there remains an even greater rest for God's people. As great as that rest is, this rest that remains for God's people today, how do we miss out on it? Well, the same way the Exodus generation missed the rest in Canaan, verse 7 tells us they did not go in because of their disobedience, because God's rest is never separate from his rule. And why did they disobey? Why did they rebel against his rule? Verse 2 tells us they heard the message of God's promised rest, the good news. Literally, they heard the gospel, but did not combine it with faith. In other words, their disobedience flowed from their disbelief, their unbelief. The same unbelief that birthed the temptation to turn away from God, away from following Moses, and to turn back to their oppressors in Egypt. So what was it that they did not believe? Well, the psalm quoted actually points back to events recorded in the book of Numbers. You see, after coming out of Egypt, a leader from each of the 12 tribes was selected to spy out the land of Canaan. And 40 days later, they came back with their report. It was, indeed, a land flowing with milk and honey, with abundant fruit, just as God had promised. But 10 of the spies described the land, particularly the inhabitants of the land, in a way seemingly tailor-made to inspire fear of entering it, exaggerating whatever details might discourage them from trying to go in, describing the land as one that devours its inhabitants, making their report all about how the Israelites measure up to the task before them. The two other spies, Joshua and Caleb, made it about who their God is, pointing people back to him, to his promises, his strength, his power. And despite seeing that all their God had done to bring them out of Egypt, the plagues that, that fell on their former captors, the, the parting of the sea, the defeat of Egypt's mighty army, God feeding them food so unexpected that the name of it, manna, literally means, what is it? Despite seeing God do all of this, the Exodus generation did not believe God could deliver on his promise to bring them into the land. So we hear in verse 7 this warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
the very thing that the Exodus generation was guilty of. As Lane puts it, hardness of heart, this, this intelligent, bland unbelief, signifies treating the Lord with contempt. It is the refusal to believe the Lord. It is choosing to listen to human voices of despair rather than listening to the voice of God. And so what did they do? They ignored Joshua and Caleb and instead believed the spies who delivered a bad report of the land. They believed the inhabitants of the land were too strong. They believed the land was not worth it. They believed that the one they'd been following was not worth following any longer, just as the original audience of Hebrews was tempted to believe. You see, the unbelief Hebrews talks about isn't simply the lack of belief, but the presence of a rival belief, one that makes belief in God and his promises seem simply unbelievable one that causes them to miss out on God's rest, and now serves as a warning that the same could happen to us too, even today. So what kind of belief can cause us to miss out on God's rest today? Well, think about what the Exodus generation was coming out of. After generations of living in Egypt, the Israelites became so numerous that they were seen as a threat to be contained. So the Egyptian pharaoh made them slaves working them seven days a week from sunup to sundown with no vacation days. And when they were asked, and when they asked if they could have any time off uh, to go and worship their God, their oppressors said, you're just saying that because you're lazy. Saying, we were making bricks before with the straw we gave you, now why don't you go get your own straw, but keep on making the same amount of bricks for us. And of course, when they can't meet the quota, the Israelite foremen were beaten sending a message to all the Israelites, making them all fear for their life. And after all, the only reason they were still left alive in Egypt is because Egypt benefited from their free labor. And as a result, here's the message that was quite literally beaten into them by their captors. The only thing that justifies my existence is my work. The standard of work is actually overwork, and anything short of overwork is laziness. That's the belief that flows naturally from living as a slave. It's, it's a slave mentality. You're justified by your works, and if you're not overworking, you're lazy. But you don't have to be a literal slave to adopt this mentality or internalize these types of beliefs. When I was working for a college ministry, my supervisor heard the type of schedule that I was keeping and, and knew he needed to intervene. So he gave me the hardest assignment that I could imagine. He says, Keith, I want you to take one day, 24 hours, off. No ministry, no work, just rest. I didn't know how that was possible, even though it was literally part of my job description from day one. I mean, my work was the whole reason that I'd moved across the country to be in this new place. It's, it's why I was there in the first place. And if I take this day off, I can immediately think of the people that would be affected. And if I take that day off, I think of these other people that would be affected. And, and yet it was like I'd forgotten that I was just one finite person serving an infinite God and had been living as if I was an infinite person serving a finite God. I couldn't understand how the other interns who started with me could spend time together not talking about ministry not going to campus, but just resting? Without realizing it, my standard for work had become overwork. 
and my identity had become wrapped up in being the college ministry guy, the guy who was needed, the guy who had answers, the guy who was doing what others were not doing, and the thing I would never really say out loud, the guy who just wanted to be the hero, the guy who was trying to justify himself before others through his ceaseless work and not just through my job. So I was given the same instruction, the same command as the ancient Israelites were given to keep them, to keep me from continuing in a slave mentality. Take a Sabbath, take a day off to be reminded you are not a slave by ceasing to live as one. To be reminded that God is the one who makes the world go round, not you. And yet the struggle with this mentality, one that can't say no because one's work is seen as accomplishing more than just work, isn't limited to a former college ministry worker who was headed for burnout. Twice, I think. Nor was it limited to escaped slaves from ancient Egypt. In fact, it's actually so common that it's even made its way into popular culture, even in songs that Disney characters sing. A few years ago, uh, the movie Encanto told the story of a fictional family with magical powers who live in Colombia, occasionally break out into song, but who don't talk about Bruno. Now last week, my last week, my wife, who by the way is the source of like amazing sermon illustrations, um, was sharing with me a, a clip uh, where one of the characters, Louisa, sings about the pressure that she feels under the surface of her super strong exterior. Outward, Louisa sings, I glow because I know what my worth is, but under the surface, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. She's saying that her work determines her worth. And even though she can do more and better than anyone else around her, it's somehow never enough. So how does she always feel? What does she always feel? Pressure. Like a drip, drip, drip that'll never stop. Pressure until you go pop. Pressure to perform, to, to keep it up. And in the back of her mind is the question of identity. Who am I if I don't have what it takes, she sings. Sure, I've done all that, but who am I if I can't do the next thing? Am I still the strong one? Am I still the dependable one? And towards the end, we hear her dreams of an elusive rest if she can only shake the crushing weight of expectations. And while the movie centers around the dynamics of a Colombian family, the experience she sings about is by no means a foreign reality or limited to family. You see, when you're always working or you can't say no because someone or something won't let you rest, you're living like a slave. You see, uh, when you're always working, you see, whether it's the reason is uh, your company or your culture's expectations, whether it's maybe your school's demands, maybe it's the demands of materialism, materialism or frankly, your own expectations, possibly driven by your own insecurities, as I've seen in my own life. And the way that so many have resonated with the words of Louisa's song show us just how common her struggle is. You see, your work, the things that you do, whether in a professional sense or otherwise, can be seen as what determines your worth and your identity. Which means in doing it, you not only feel the weight of the tasks before you, but the pressure of proving your worth, establishing your identity through that work. Just think about it. Why do some of us have such a hard time resting? It's because underneath 
our work, there's this endless work of trying to justify ourselves, to prove ourselves, of trying to be our own savior. Many of you have seen the movie Chariots of Fire, 1981 Academy Award winner. It's based on a true story. It revolves around two athletes training for the 1924 Olympics, Eric Little and Harold Abrahams. Little, who was the, the son of Christian missionaries, was of the same faith as those the book of Hebrews was written to. And Abrahams, who was Jewish, was of the same faith that they were tempted to turn back to. Both are training for a race, but go about it very differently. Abraham's uh, approach is summarized in, in these words. He runs a race that's about 10 seconds long, and he says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. But Little, who famously refused to run on the Sabbath, can say this, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. In his book, Jesus the King, Tim Keller writes, Harold Abrahams was weary even when he rested, and Eric Little was rested even when he was exerting himself. Why? Because there is a work underneath our work that we really need rest from. It's the work of self-justification. One runs in fear to try to prove himself. The other one runs in freedom because he's already approved. Speaking of a present reality, as we see in verse 3, now, we who have believed enter that rest. When? Not just in the future, but in a sense, in the present. A foretaste of that future reality. You see, Hebrews 4 isn't just talking about a future rest, but also about one that we can enter into now. And if that's the kind of elusive rest that God invites his people into now, where can we find it? How do we enter it? This kind of deeper rest, soul rest, if you will. If you can enter it now, where's the door? Jesus says, I am the door. If you're looking for this kind of soul rest, Jesus says you find it by coming to him. In the scripture reading you heard earlier in Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But to clarify, he says in the next verse, rest for your souls. How is that? You see, Jesus can offer rest to those weary from their burdens because he actually took that burden upon himself, the burden of proof, in a sense. You see, the reason why our performance, our works, our striving to prove ourselves can never give us deep soul rest is because they're never finished. I mean, because our works are incomplete. You see, the reason that we never seem to be satisfied with our work is that we know it's never finished either. You see, you can ace that test, but if you're trying to find your significance in being the good student, there's always the next test. You can please that person, but if you're a people pleaser, what about the next time, or what about the next person? You can win an account, win the case, save that patient, but there will always be another. And even if someone could keep it up indefinitely, all of our works are imperfect, tainted with sin. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, not, it's not just that, that our works might be done imperfectly, but done with imperfect and mixed motives. I mean, maybe it's that compliment that we give to the other person, not just so that they will think well of themselves, but so that they will think well of us for saying it to them. It might be that time when we're just sitting there and, and realizing our tendency to treat those that can give us something in return, or those that don't seem like a burden, 
far better than we treat those that are the opposite. These are the kinds of things that others may never see in us, uh, but we do. And even if we don't see them, God does. You see, not a single person can bear the crushing burden of having to prove yourself over and over again for an entire lifetime, not just before others or ourselves, but before a holy, all-seeing God. Nobody except one. Jesus Christ came to this earth as the eternal God in the flesh. He alone lived a perfect life all the days of his life. He alone never faltered, never stumbled, never caved, all the way to the end. He resisted every temptation that he faced. He always did what pleased his Father in heaven, always living in line with his rule. And yet, because he knew God was still ruling over all things, he didn't seek out to heal everyone everywhere that he possibly could have. He slept once in a boat when his disciples were freaking out and did not want him sleeping at that time. He went away to quiet places to be with his father when others wanted him with them so they could be taught more. All the while believing his heavenly father is still working even when he is not. And when he died upon the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. What was finished? His work. The work that he was sent to do. You see, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law of God, but to fulfill it. You see, every commandment of God was fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ, proving his righteousness as the beloved Son of God, the one who, to whom God can say, this is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. But why did he do all that? He already was righteous. God the Father already knew that. He didn't need to prove it to God. Why did he do all of that? For you. For me. For any who would come to him in faith. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus says that he came to serve, to meet the needs of others, and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for many. Which means the perfect life he lived was actually lived for others not just the deeds that he did that benefited others in that time, but the perfect record that he offered all who, weary and burdened from striving to prove themselves, turned to him for rest, united by faith with him and his perfect record, the one who bears for those who believe in him the burden that they could not bear, but also bearing in his body on the cross the just punishment for sin that none of us could bear. The prophet Isaiah foretold being crushed for our sins. And what happens when we believe this, this gospel Hebrews 4 is mentioning? Look at verse 10 again. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work. Not just physical work on the Sabbath, but that deeper work. Rest from the work of self-justification. Rest from the work of proving yourself. Rest from the work underneath our work that we can never rest from apart from Christ. And the only way that happens is by turning away from trying to make ourselves acceptable on the basis of our own work and accepting Christ's offer to be made acceptable on the basis of his finished work on our behalf. His perfect life credited to you, united with him by faith, united with those, united with the one whose work of living a perfect life, of perfect obedience, fully in line with the rule of God, is finished. So you can stop your striving to prove yourself 
and delight in the finished work of Christ credited to you, a delight that makes you want to live under his rule, knowing that in your union with Christ, God is pleased with you as well, that he now delights in you, sings over you, and knowing that and believing that is what lets you finally rest. Because the work of Christ is finished, because he makes you complete, the message of Hebrews 4 is to make every effort to avoid going back to the heavy, wearisome burden of trying to make yourself complete. Instead, staying the course, following Jesus to the end, and whenever tempted to turn back, to trusting in your own doing to complete what's lacking in you, to remember the truth found in the old hymn appropriately titled, It is Finished. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Let me pray for us.